Hello friends, welcome to Tales of Recovery. This is Grease Alves and my guest today is my dear friend Lisa Mayer. Hi. Um, I'm really excited to have Lisa here. She has an amazing story of recovery and of resilience and of just um, so much depth of the soul. So thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. And uh, tell us your story. All right. <laughs> Where to begin? It's been a long and winding road. Um, let's see. So today I am 10 months and nine days sober. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and that is still really early in this recovery game. So my recovery is still this little baby egg that I'm protecting from the elements and developing and nurturing. Um, but even though it's only been 10 months, I've already started to reap so many benefits of living an active life in recovery from addiction and I found so much gratitude. Um, I found a lot of it in the yoga teacher training where we met. That's right. We met at Core Power. We met at yoga teacher, yeah. Yeah. And from the very beginning, I remember we were doing introductions in our circle, in our class, and I wanted to enter into that training completely honest and living in my truth. So I introduced myself and said that, you know, I had been brought to that training as a means of continuing my recovery from drugs and alcohol. And I remember you were in the corner and we had never spoken or talked before. And Grace was like, me too, I've got 20 years. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I just, yeah, I felt so much safer and so much more at home. So mm. it's really special to be here with you. Oh, thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so let's see. I am 33 years old. And I was adopted from South Korea in 1985. Mm -hmm. um, I came over when I was about a year old. My parents, um, they were living in Stevensville, Montana. So I was raised in rural Montana by two white people as a Korean adoptee. <laughs> it, was, it, was, okay. it was an interesting upbringing. Um, and that was just one of many reasons that I felt really like an outsider and like an other growing up. Uh, you don't see a lot of Asian people in Montana. Mm -hmm. You don't, you see a lot of white people. You see a lot of um, people who look the same, have the same frame of mind and um, aren't there. They, I always found a lot of love and acceptance in that community, but it was always incredibly obvious that I didn't look like the people around me and I didn't have the same story as the people around me. So I was, um, I was found in Korea in um, a grocery store. So I don't have any of my genetic history. Um, but I do know that my parents who adopted me are both alcoholics and that they have been since I can remember. So I grew up in a household witnessing what I thought was normal which was, right. you know, medicating, medicating self-soothing, mm. coping with life's problems, and, you know, celebrating life's successes as well with alcohol. Right. Um, and that is the alcoholic persona that I also took on later in life. So I think it's really important to mention that 
every time I tell my story um, because there's someone out there I know who needs to hear that alcoholism and addiction, yes, we some of us do have genetic dispositions towards addiction, but some of us simply learn it as a behavior. Right. And alcoholism and addiction, it's a disease and it's powerful and it's predatory. And it doesn't matter if you your weakness is emotional or genetic. If the disease sees a weakness in you, it will come and infect you and infect your life and take over. So if you're out there and you're thinking, you know, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't have any of this in my family. I'm not genetically predisposed. Like, don't worry. You're normal. You're okay. Mm -hmm. You learned it somewhere and the disease knew that you learned it and it took over. And there's hope for recovery. And there's hope for recovery. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You're not alone. Um, So I started drinking when I was about 13 Uh, My parents split up when I was really young, and I lived primarily with my mom and my stepdad. And my sophomore year in high school, uh, 9-11 happened, and my stepdad was in the military. So he got deployed pretty consistently for a few years after that. And before then, we had been fighting every single night in my home. It was my mom, my stepdad, and myself about my mom's drinking in particular and just the way it was affecting our family, her personal life, her health, um, the life of, I don't know, everyone, our dogs. Mm. There would be something that would set off the conversation and then it was like a record playing over and over again every night. So when my stepdad Mm. left, um, it was just my mom and I left to play that record over and over again. And it got really difficult really fast. And this new thing started happening where our altercations every night started getting physical. Mm. And it was just so hard. I was I was a really successful student in high school. And I just remember that feeling of living in chaos at home and then sleeping a few hours, waking up, going to school and having to put on that face of, you know, I'm a, I'm a grounded, well-adjusted. Yeah. yeah, Everything's fine. I'm going to get good grades Mm. and just having to maintain that facade because I didn't feel safe telling my truth in that environment. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about recovery is just realizing that I can, and it is actually the most healthy decision for me to live my full truth. Speak your truth. A hundred percent of the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, Just that free flow of honesty is so freeing. Um, But I, you know, at 13, you don't know that. No, I mean, I could just imagine. As it is, it's such a hard age because you're figuring out who do you belong with or what you should say, what you should do with all that uh, I mean, I think it's, it just shows the resilience, the beginning of the resilience, even showing up to the school, mm-hmm. getting all the grades and participating and doing, um, and then having to not, to do that really in silence, suffering in silence, mm-hmm. coming home to the same. Yeah. So, yeah. Because I, I think when we are that young, you know, our one goal is really to fit this mold 
of a normal person, a normal successful person mm -hmm. that we see and anything that doesn't fit into that mold, we think it's wrong mm -hmm. and we're ashamed of it. Um, but there is no mold. Right, right, right. <laughs> we all have there's no normal here. there is no normal if people seem normal well, you just normal. haven't gotten to know them yeah. well enough <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah so eventually um this was when i uh, a couple years later i was 15 um i believe i was a, a sophomore at that time no I, I was in the middle of high school that's all i remember mm -hmm. um and my mom and i had had a knockdown drag out war and the next morning I woke up, her bags were packed, and she announced that she was leaving. She was going to live at our lake house, which was about six hours away. We weren't fancy people. Everyone has a lake house in Montana. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get excited. Um, and uh, she left. She and wow. she had done this a couple of times before, but she came back pretty immediately. But this time it was for good. And... I only saw her a few times in the next four years. Mm. Yeah, so that was, you know, in the beginning it was kind of a relief, but after about a week, you know, I remember thinking, mm. this is not normal. You know, I didn't mm. know how to get a hold of my stepdad. I was still going to school, acting like a normal student, but then coming home this time to a completely peaceful but empty home. Right. And I remember calling my dad, who I was pretty estranged from. He was living in Seattle. And I asked him, I said, can I come and live with you? I don't think that my mom's coming back. And he said, no, mm. uh, life is really good here with, um, you know, his new wife and her kids. And we have a, we have a system. And I think that you might upset that system. Oh, with those words? He said it with those words? Yeah, he's oh. pretty cut and dry. Yeah. And again, I was adopted, and they split up pretty soon after my adoption. So I don't feel like he ever truly attached to me as a parent. Mm. You know, I I think um, I'm grateful for what he has done for me. Right, right, right. Um, just as someone who adopted me. But the, that, like, very deep-seated emotional parental role, he's never filled no. that. Uh, so he said, you know, I'll stop paying child support to your mom. I'll start sending you the check. You've got $500 a month. You've always been a really smart kid. Like you can do this. So I, again, like as children, we accept normal as what we're told normal is. Yeah. So even though now where I am saying, saying that I know my reaction to hearing that would be like, that's not normal, that's yeah. not right, that's not okay. But, you know, in that moment, that's what the adults in my life were telling me was normal and okay, and so I accepted it. And I grew up really fast, and mm. I learned a lot of those independent lessons of life um, really early, um, the, not the least of which was, you know, how much toilet paper costs. And um, right. I told you before, I put um, foil in the microwave because I didn't know. And it lit on fire and I ran into the backyard and just little life lessons like that, you know. Um, and uh, yeah, and, and still developed an even thicker shroud of secrecy as far as 
living without parents, you know, that's not legal. I knew that wasn't legal. Um, But I was still really successful at school. So... um, You didn't notice? Yeah. So it was like, just fake it for two years, get to college. So I remember I applied to one school, Emerson College in Boston. I was really heavily involved in um, the theater arts department, not acting. I liked the other side. I liked being behind the scenes and doing the design and the stage management. And so that's what I wanted to study in college. So I sought out one of the best schools in the country. I put in my application. Um, I was working at the time, so I was able to pay for those applications and taking the tests and everything. And I remember I got the big letter in the mail. You know, if you get a small letter, it's bad. If you get the big, big envelope, it's good. And I remember getting home one day and I had the big envelope uh, from Emerson College and I opened it immediately and I read the letter and it said, you're accepted. Uh And I was so happy. Um... Uh, but I was completely alone. Mm. And that was just one of many moments throughout my life where I felt like I worked really hard to gain this moment of success and happiness. Mm. Um, But even when I got that, when I got the letter, the thing I worked so hard for, I didn't have anyone to share it with. Mm. And... I knew that that wasn't normal. I knew that this wasn't the experience that a lot of kids were having around the country. I knew that's not what my friends were experiencing. It was probably super painful. Yeah. Yeah. But living in that, um, I I don't know, I think success without a sense of accomplishment has been a real theme in my life. Um, And that, you know, you can try to fake until you make it as far as professional things but emotionally you're just faking it you know so I went to college and um oh and the drinking part (laughs) I um as soon as my mom left town um I started drinking it was it was like she put down the glass when she left and I picked it right up Mm -hmm. and I hadn't drank before then but for some reason it just felt like well like I'm the woman of the house now, and this is what the woman of the house does. Mm. She drinks every night. So they left a full liquor cabinet. I never, I had friends who could get more for me, like I never wanted for alcohol. And um, it felt, it felt really comforting. It was like your mom was there. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. I I drank out of the same glasses. I sat in the same chair. Mm. Um, And it just felt like what I should do. And I went to college, and I kept drinking. I joined a sorority, um, and I remember I had to get my stomach pumped my freshman year because I had gone too hard, and that was really embarrassing. And then I learned how to to drink without getting sick and how to get really... I was like, I'm going to be really good at drinking. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get good at this. This is never going to happen again. you know. And that's the addict talking. Most people yeah. would be like... I'm not going to drink that much ever again because this is what happens when you drink that much. In my mind, I was like, that's How not... How we work around this? Right? Like, <laughs> I I, made, I can make a spreadsheet about how much I can drink every hour. And I, can, I can avoid this from ever happening again. So um, I ended up studying in Amsterdam for a semester and I started doing all of those soft drugs that were legal over there. And then I came back to 
to Boston where I was going to college and I don't know, I was pretty naive. Like I remember getting back and my friends were like smoking pot and doing mushrooms and I was like, wait, you can do that in the States? <laughs> like I had just never been surrounded by that. And so once I knew that I could get my hands a hold of that in the States, like it was over. Like pot became the first thing that I did when I woke up in the morning and every 30 minutes during the day and then the evening and then the last thing I did at night. Um, so I really think, you know, smoking cigarettes and smoking pot was, that was my first addiction. Mm -hmm. Um, I got out of college. I came back to Montana, but to a different city and I fell into a, a really physically abusive relationship, um, with, um, a guy in a ski town. And, you know, I think that when you experience abuse as a child or really any time in your life and it's unaddressed and it's unresolved and we we don't address that trauma it is it is destined that they will repeat in your life over and over and over again yeah until you really sit take a hard look at the situation and at yourself and figure out what it is that is allowing that to continue to enter your life it's going to keep happening, and that's what I found. Every single one of my relationships up until last year um, has been physically and emotionally abusive, mm. and every single time it felt like, I can't believe this is happening again. I can't believe that I'm letting this happen mm. again. How I thought that it was going to be different this time, mm. but you, if nothing changes, nothing changes. Yeah. And it's like what you know. It's like the... The level, the base level of experience of, well, this is what I know. This is what makes me feel alive mm -hmm. or feel something. Because yeah. you're constantly medicating to not feel the pain. However, these experiences are what, it's like it's in your memory base. Yeah. It's like that book, the trauma. Mm -hmm. um, the body keeps the, the body score. The body keeps the score. It's like, you're, it's in, yeah. It's insane, yeah. Especially in physical altercations, you know, your adrenaline level is so mm -hmm. high and that's what you... You know, your emotions are really high, and yeah. so you're, that's the physical manifestation of your emotions. Yeah. And so um, that first abusive relationship, I ended up, ended up in jail. Yeah. Uh, the cops were called by our neighbors, and um, they had to take someone. And I was an active participant. I definitely got beat up more than I was physically acting out towards this guy, but, like, I was no angel. Um, but in that case, like, I was a lot more messed up than him, and I remember the police officer, they split us up, and he, you know, I had bruises all over my face, all over my arms, I had a broken wrist at the time, and he was just like, listen, like, one of, you need to say something, you need to tell me what's going on, because if you don't tell me what's going on, I have to take you to jail. I have to take one of you. That's the law. I can't leave you both in this house. So I need you to tell me what's going on. And I I didn't say anything. Mm. I said, everything's fine. You know, we just, we got into it. And, you know, he's a really good guy. And, um, mm. and I, I, I don't think that I'm alone. I think that a lot of women have that story. Yeah. I'm just, you know, putting... Being scared to brushing it under to the rug. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, and in abusive relationships, that's the fear that we live in. So um, 
now I see it as a blessing. They ended up hauling me into jail. I spent some time there and I got in touch with, or an advocate got in touch with me and helped me navigate out of that situation. But it took about six months. So I was on pretrial, which is kind of like parole on the front mm -hmm. end. Um, so I had a lot of restrictions on me. So they drug tested me and I had to meet with an officer every week. And so I stopped smoking pot, which mm -hmm. was great. Um, but it was also really easy for me to stop. Um, I don't know why mm -hmm. pot, like I, I didn't really have withdrawals. Like it was just, it was easy to give up, but, um, I still had alcohol. Yeah. So I turned to that and soon after alcohol became the thing that I would use when I first woke up and then every 30 minutes after until I went to sleep and at this point you're done with college I was done with college okay. yep um I finished college in three years and then mm -hmm. I was like I'm gonna take a gap year I'm gonna go back to Montana I'm gonna work on the ski slopes mm -hmm. and that gap year has turned into a gap decade <laughs> but, you know I'm here there you are. <laughs> My gap year's over. Lots of wisdom in the gap. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I definitely, I wouldn't take any of it back. I needed to live. It's your story. Yeah. Yeah. And if any one thing hadn't have happened, I may not have gotten to where I am now, and I wouldn't trade that for the world. Yeah. So if that was the recipe for how I had to get here, then that's the yeah. recipe. Yeah. You know. So after that, I headed down to California because um, that's what people in Montana do to start their lives over. They go to California. Um, so I came down here. I met a guy named Sean, and um, we ended up, that poor guy, all he wanted to do was start law school. And I was just, I was in my disease. I was a complete mess. And I had run to California and I wanted to keep running. Like I kept, this is what happens when you're in your disease. You are so good at committing to things and to starting them and to making new connections and new friendships. You are so good at that. And people really want you to commit to them and you really want to commit, but you can't follow through. Mm. Like, when you are in your addiction, you can't follow through on anything. It's just, it's like you have a mental, spiritual barrier to yeah. following through. And in not following through, you burn bridges. Right. You make promises, you don't keep them. Feelings get hurt. Situations that you thought would be perfect end up on fire. Um, and then if you're like me, you want to run away. And you want to start somewhere new. And you think that it's going to be different. But again, if nothing changes, nothing Wherever changes. You go, there you are. There you are. Mm -hmm. You know, like I couldn't, I spent so much of this past 10 years trying to run away. But I was running away from the wrong thing because I could not run away from myself. Yeah. No matter what, I had to be with myself. I, um, I could find temporary relief by drinking and turning into a different person. But then... I would, that would be followed by sickness and regret and reality. And so, yeah, so poor guy, I, um, I met him, he wanted to start law school and I was like, that's great that you want to start law school. I want to move to South America. <laughs> and he was like, 
you know, I think he was really drawn to me because I was really adventurous and he wanted a little bit of that in his life. So he said, okay, I'll postpone and let's go. So we went down to Peru and Ecuador. We taught English. We did have some great experiences, but I was slipping further and further into my disease. Mm-hmm. Um, and I look back at that trip. Um, I forget exactly how long we spent there. Um, it was the better part of a year. And it was like we had just met. So the more he fell in love with me, I see that the more I was falling in love with alcohol. Mm. And that is, like, I look back at all of my relationships and I'm like, they were never going to work out because the first love of my life, like the one I was committed to, my ride or die, was alcohol, you know? And it was that same love and codependency that you feel when you're in a personal relationship. That's how I felt with it. So, of course, none of my relationships worked out because I there was someone else in the room. You know, there was a third party. I could never fully give my heart to someone. I could never fully love someone because I was so in love with alcohol. So, and like, I, like, God forbid someone try to get in between me and alcohol, you know, then it was over. Mm -hmm. So, and that eventually is what happened with Sean is he tried to get between me and the one love in my life, Mm -hmm. you know, and that got really complicated and really gross really quickly. And it lasted a couple of years longer than I would have ever expected it to. Um, I fell into a really deep depression when we got to Ecuador. Um, I tried to hang myself in a hostel that we were living in, and he got really concerned with me, obviously. Um, And, you know, the relationship became really tumultuous, which just made me drink even more. We got back to the States, and um, he pretty much had washed his hands of the whole situation, was like, I'm done. And I went back up to Montana, and then I came back down, and, you know, we are so convincing in our disease. Like, we can convince anyone to do anything, and I I convinced him back in love with me. Mm -hmm. And poor guy was going to start law school again, and I was like, no, I want to go to Korea. You took him to Korea next. Yep. So we went to Korea. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, there's two sides of every street. And I know that he is responsible for the way that he lived his life. And he's responsible for coming along on this journey. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that I'm without guilt on my end for dragging him and manipulating him into doing that with me. Mm -hmm. And um, so we went over to Korea for about a year and a half. And... It got really ugly. Like, I was teaching students. I was teaching 200 school-age kids, and I was drinking. Like, it was, like, over there they drink soju, and I don't know if anyone's ever drank soju, (sighs) but it's, like, it tastes like vodka gone bad. Oh. And I was drinking that 24-7, and... Is it, like, sake, or what is it? What is it? It's, like... Saki, but not like really bad, like mm. low grade. It's mm. like a step above rubbing alcohol. It's just oh, wow. sorry for any like Korean nationals out there who love your soju, <laughs> but I just and like trust me, like I drank a lot of it, so I'm yeah. not I'm not above it at all. Um, 
but yeah, I was drinking really heavily. Um, I was drinking the heaviest I had ever drank. And, um, you know, I was surrounded by a community of people, um, expats in the small town that we were living in. And we all drank really heavily. Mm-hmm. And it, but it did, like, there were a couple moments where I was like, all right, I've got two Irishmen, an Australian, and a guy from New Zealand all drinking with me. And, like, I'm drinking more, mm-hmm. and I'm going to drink longer yeah. than these four men. So you had an awareness, like, ooh, this is kind of... You just still weren't ready to do anything about it, yeah. I was still, like, That's in my mind, I think I was like, you know, back in college, I was like, I'm going to be good at drinking. Yeah. I think I was like, well, mission accomplished. Yeah. I'm really good at drinking now. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, so... On our way over to Korea, I convinced Sean to marry me. That was that was awful. Um, yeah, he was really concerned with me as far as my depression and where it was taking me mentally. And he had reached out to one of his former students um, via email about who had who suffered like some of the same things that I was and had asked for help and for feedback and she had given it to him and then she had also said that she was interested in him and I anyway I found these emails and I got all enraged and jealous and I was like you don't love me and he was like I do love you I love you so much I want to marry you and I was like okay let's get married tomorrow (laughs) and so we got married the next day and that's my (laughs) impulse marriage that's my impulse marriage yeah that's my um so I got that first marriage out of the way. That was good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, so we came back from Korea. Um, We were married. Nobody knew we were married. Um, It's really easy to continue to lie when you're in your addiction because you're you're living all of these lives simultaneously. So making that decision to get married and not tell anyone, like, again, right now, it seems insane. It seems like, I would never do that. I think that's insane. But at the time, when you're living an insane life, it seems like, yeah, that's exactly what I should be doing. You're like in a movie. Yeah, yeah. So whatever's going to happen is just part of the movie. It's fine. Yeah, yeah. It's rolling. Yeah, it kind of even, like, it kind of even validates how you're living, you know? It's insane. Um... So we got back, he actually started law school, um, and he graduated, and he lived happily ever after. He's fine, don't worry about him. Um, But we ended up, we ended up breaking up. I woke up, and one morning when we got back, he had just started school, and um, it was really reminiscent of what happened with my mom, like, his bags were packed, and I remember him looking at me, and tears were in his eyes, and he just said, I can't watch you kill yourself anymore, mm-hmm. I gotta go, and I remember, I remember thinking, like, yeah, you do have to go, I can't believe you haven't gone sooner, and, uh, he asked if he could take my car so he could live in it, and I said, yeah, that's fine, and then I, I went, I went hard for about two weeks. Um, It was just vodka 24-7. I remember I got sent home from work. My manager one day was like, you reek of alcohol. We can't have you here. Gave me a pamphlet on addiction (laughs) and said, you know, we really appreciate you as an employee, but you need to go home and sleep it off. And I was just in such a bad place that... 
I took it to heart. And I went home and I took a bottle of Ambien and I drank a handle of vodka. And I was like, I remember being like, I'm just going to sleep it off. Mm. And somehow in there, I managed to call for help and an ambulance came, took me to Kaiser. They pumped my stomach. I woke up um, and I was so disappointed. I was just like, I don't like. I was trying, like, this is what happens, I think, like, at least for me, it's like you try to kill yourself, and then you wake up, and your situation's not, you're still alive, and somehow everything's worse, and it seems terrible, but if you do the work to invite gratitude and recovery into your life, it somehow, somehow that moment of waking up changes from the worst moment of your life to the best moment of your life. Yeah like thank goodness I woke up you know thank goodness I didn't die but and and it's just amazing how hard work can change your perspective and that's really the greatest gift it's just perspective um you have to do the work together doing the work is absolutely the main meal Yeah. yeah so I um you know I've been working in bars and restaurants for um seven years since then and I've never done any healing I've never done any self-reflection I've I've been just surviving and calling it living and you know I had friends but I never got close to them because they couldn't know how much I drank in my mind they couldn't know that or else it wouldn't be the same um so a a lot of people know exactly how much they drink every day and a lot of people talk about hangovers like I haven't had a hangover in five years because I haven't ever sobered up enough to have a hangover um I was getting to the point where I was like I had alcohol in my car I had alcohol in my purse like, my water bottles had alcohol in them, like, everything, like, it was, everything was about, how am I going to do this, how am I going to plan out my day so that I can be drinking constantly, and nobody can find out, and that is, that was such a terrifying place to be in, and it was just, it's exhausting, it's exhausting, and, um, I was, conniving enough to get away with it until my body started failing last year Um, because your body can can only handle that for so long well at least mine could couldn't for that long so um I started having like crazy abdominal pains it got to the point where I couldn't if I ate even just like a little saltine cracker like, 20 minutes later, I was throwing it up. Um, everything, like, n- I couldn't keep anything down. I couldn't keep water down. But somehow, my body was still managing to expel things out of me, but I didn't have any control over that either. Mm-hmm. So I was just, I was house-ridden, bed-ridden. Like, I was in the bathroom constantly either throwing up or like it was just it was awful 
and I went to the ER a few t- like well I went to the ER like probably six times last year mm. and I asked them like if I if they could help me sober up because I the withdrawals were incredible you know um I was sleeping for just like 20 or 30 minute periods at a time because um, that's as long as my body could go without a drink mm. before I started shaking and my nervous system started going insane. Mm. Um, so um, about the third or fourth time I went to the ER last year, you know, my star- my charts started looking pretty, pretty bad. And they would keep me in the hospital for a number of days. And the doctors and nurses started saying the same things, like, you know, you need to get help. You need a higher level of care. You can't keep doing this, you know. They're showing me charts saying this is your liver function three months ago. This is your liver function now. Your liver is failing. Your kidney is failing. Mm -hmm. You can't keep down fluids. Like, this is what's happening to your brain. This is... and. You know, that was just the physical ramifications, right. you know, like we're not even talking about the emotional and spiritual ramifications that were happening or the financial, you know. Right. Um, so, well, wait, what was going through your mind when they're telling you, this is your liver, this are your kidneys? I was like, I'm going to fix this. I was like, I, I got I this. I've got this, yeah. you know. And I was always really polite, like, thank you so much for your concern, but I really, like, I really am going to be okay. Mm -hmm. Like, in my mind, it wasn't possible for my liver to fail. Yeah. Like, because I had always worked myself out of situations. Like, oh, I'm going to lose my job. Okay, I'm going to, like, work extra hard, and I'm going to figure it out, and then I would keep it. Or, you know, if something was about to fail, I could always bring it together again. But, like, your body, you can't take out loans on your body it um so yeah so I got to the point where I I couldn't function anymore I had lost my job um and I couldn't I had to crawl from my bed to the bathroom which was attached to my bedroom um I was with a really terrible guy at the time who would bring me alcohol and I was just my world had gotten so small um I was dreaming and yearning for the days where I could run away to a different country mm. like I couldn't even like I couldn't run to my closet if I wanted to at that mm. time and you know I, like as my addiction progressed, like, everything got worse, you know, like, and that included my apartments, my, my apartments got worse and worse and worse and smaller and dirtier and grosser and weirder and less safe, and it was basically, like, a, it was, it was like a basement drug house that I was living in, mm-hmm. and it had, like, two bedrooms, and there were, like, five or six people on any given week living there, there was a stray dog that had fleas, and um, it was a constant party, twenty four seven. There's a drug dealer upstairs. Like it was just, it was really gross. And I had, I woke up one morning and, um, I could hear that nobody was home, 
And that was so weird because someone was always home at that house. And I I remember sitting and realizing that I was no longer afraid about what was going to happen to me and what my future would be, what I would be when I grow up, if I would ever fall in love. Like, I wasn't worried about any of it because it didn't exist anymore. Um, And I hadn't ever felt like that before. Um, Yeah, I had no anxiety because I had no future. You were done. I was done. I just knew that, like, my path was ending, my life was ending... I was not going to live very much longer. Mm -hmm. And I I don't even remember making a decision. I just remember, like I describe it as like the like Iron Man armor came over me. Mm. And it just like something activated in me that gave me the superhuman strength where suddenly I stood up. I walked to the street, I had my phone in my hand, I had shoes on my feet. Like, guys, these are things that hadn't been happening for weeks. You know, like, I had no, I don't know where my phone came from. I don't know how on earth it was charged. I don't know how I had enough money in my account to get a lift. But it all happened in this haze, and I called a lift, I got into it, and I said, I need to go to the hospital I need to go to Sharp Memorial ER right now. And the guy drove me there. And, you know, I I would ask me, like, are you okay? What's going on? (laughs) Like, you know, I looked like hell. I probably hadn't showered for 12 days. And um, I was like, you know, I I need to get sober. I need need to fix this. I need to. And and the guy, um, I forget his name, but he was was amazing. He was like, you got this girl. (laughs) Like, you can't. The lift cheerleader. Yeah, it was, you know, like, I was just, he was a gift. Like, he was exactly what I needed in that moment. Like, he So didn't... beautifully ordained. Yeah. The supernatural strength. Right. Your spirit can only create. Yep. This lift, dude. Mm-hmm. And here we go to begin. Yeah. I know. Like, it was so, like, I can't even believe it ever happened. Mm-hmm. I'm almost like, maybe I did get there in an ambulance and this is just the story that my brain made up, but, like, I don't have a bill for an ambulance, so I don't think that's what happened. So I got to the ER and um, they asked me, you know, at check-in, they're like, oh, what brings you here today? And I just said, I I just know I need to be here. I, I'm not safe out there. Mm-hmm. I need to be here. And they were like, Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So they put me into a bed and they looked at my chart and they um, got some fluids into me. A police officer came to talk to me and then um, a patient liaison from Sharp Mesa Vista, which is the mental health hospital at Sharp, came to visit me and she just said, um, do you have a desire to stop drinking? And I said, yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I just don't know how to do it. I, I don't know if I can. And she said, it's okay. I just do have the desire. Yeah. Yes. And she said, there's a bed open at Sharp Mesa Vista right now. She's like, there's never a bed open at Sharp Mesa Vista. Mm-hmm. You need to take it. 
And I didn't know what it was. Um, but I knew that this woman was telling me that it was going to help me stop drinking. And so I said, okay, I'll go. Yeah. And so they took me over there and I went to the detox wing. Uh, and I stayed there for 12 days and I began to feel a little bit better. Um, I start, I was, it was really hard to sleep. I was on a lot of Ativan. It was really hazy. Um, I didn't know what my life was going to be like when I got out of there. So there was a lot of fear, but, um, I knew that I was starting to eat a little bit and I was starting to talk about my feelings. Mm -hmm. You know, they had group sessions and they were taking really light, light cuts, you know, on, on emotions. And while I was there, there, I had a social worker and she asked me what my plan was after that. And I said, I have no idea. And she said, well, there's um, a drug and alcohol rehabilitation center um, called the Sharp McDonald Center. It's across the street. They have a bed open right now. They never have a bed open. <laughs> she was like, I think you should go. And nice. I was like, okay. I'll take yeah, my bed. Yeah. I'll take my bed. Let's mm-hmm. go. And I had no idea how I was going to pay for any of this, but they said, you know, like, you got approved for... 14 days, which turned into 19. So I, I went over to the McDonald's Center, and I was in an inpatient rehabilitation program for 19 days. Um, and it saved my life. Yeah. Uh, I think all of this combined saved my life, but specifically going there. Um, that's when we started taking those deeper emotional cuts, and I started learning about the basics of you know, cognitive and dialectical behavioral therapy and learning about mindfulness and learning about the importance of structure in just your daily life and how good it can feel to eat three meals a day Mm -hmm. and to sleep eight hours a night and how good it felt to connect with people again who had the same, who were struggling through the same moment as me. Um, but I still didn't know, still didn't know what was going to happen when I got out of there. So I worked with, um, a beautiful counselor named Ellen there and she sat me down one day and said, what's your plan for, you know, you can't live here. You can't stay here forever. Like most people hate rehab. I was like, this is great. I'll stay here forever. (laughs) And, um, you know, she asked me what my plan was and I said, I don't know. And she was like, well, there's this place you know there are things called sober livings um are in the area and you know if you go to sober living it's statistically you have a better chance of staying sober longer and I was like oh okay yeah let's Let's do that let's go so um I got a half day pass to leave rehab to go tour it's called coast recovery Mm -hmm. down near USD and it was a sober living facility for women and I toured it and at the end of the tour the manager said you know if you want to to live here I can take a deposit today we have one bed open and we never have beds open (laughs) and I had heard that enough times that I was like here's here's the last money that I have like take it I'll figure out how I'm gonna pay for it later Mm. but like yeah um I need to be here. So I moved in there. 
Yeah, I finished out a partial hospitalization program for two weeks at Sharp, and then I was in an intensive outpatient program for six weeks, and I still attend their weekly aftercare program. So during the day, it's like, do you have how many meetings, group therapy, exercise? What is like the typical healing process in one of these days? Um, when I was at the Sharp McDonald Center, we were heavily scheduled. Like mm-hmm. we had every single minute of every day was blocked out. Yeah. Looking back, like that was so important. Yeah. So this is, you know, I... No time to figure out an escape plan. Right? No time to think about it. Just keep you busy and keep you in a program. So when I got there, I had started practicing yoga three years before. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was... I found... The magic of yoga. It was, yeah, yeah. It was magical. And I truly believe that being in the yoga studio, especially in classes with women like Amore, their mm. message of self-healing and self-care and mm. self-worth and self-love, you know, if you hear that enough, it starts to resonate inside your mind and then it won't come out. Yeah. And I just remember being there and thinking, yes, like I agree with everything that you're saying. My heart, my spirit agrees with you. And then I would leave yoga and be like, but none of my actions and none of my behaviors in my life does not align with that message that I just felt so connected to. Mm. And I really like, I attribute that as where a really important seed was planted in my life of this needs to change. Yeah. It doesn't feel right anymore. You have to, I could, I saw where I wanted to be, mm-hmm. but it felt like such a far cry. I felt impossible. Like you could never, I could never be a yoga person because they were just so pure and clean. And I, you know, I, mm-hmm. that was all me projecting my insecurities yeah. on the yoga yeah. community. But, um, so I, I wanted to practice yoga when I was in rehab because I thought that was really important for me, but we were scheduled so heavily that I remember talking to the intake nurse and he was like, well, I mean, you could wake up really early. We could get you a pass for that. And he gave me like a hospital sheet and he was like, you could just put your sheet. I was like, I really would like to do it outside. And like, he was like, well, there's some grass in the parking median in the parking lot. You could practice there. And so that's what I did. I woke up every morning um, at sunrise and I did an hour of yoga Mm. out in the parking lot. The staff members would be driving in and waving at me like, oh, there's that crazy girl again, you know? Um, And it it grounded me. You know, it was my my only me time while I was in treatment. And that was my grounding for, you know, the roller coaster of emotions that was going on for the rest of the day. We did a lot of group therapy. We did a lot of, you know, each counselor would give us lectures on different different tools that we could use when we left um, for emotional regulation. And then we also did one-on-one therapy Mm -hmm. and a nutritionist came and taught us about nutrition. It was basically like learning all of those really basic things that I, I never learned as a kid, you know, it's been, it's been a real regression and you really have to swallow your pride and check your ego in order to, that's what I had to do in order to allow myself to regress back to a semi-childlike state where 
I'm in the mindset where I don't know anything. Mm. I don't know what's right. I don't know what's wrong. Tell me when to go to bed. Tell me when to wake up. Tell me what to eat. You know, like, tell me what's right and what's wrong. Teachable. Yeah. Yeah. And I look back now and my, the fact that I got to that mindset of being teachable is such a gift because I, I work with people in the program now where they are not in a teachable headspace. And if you're not willing to change, then nothing changes. So. Yeah, you have to want it. You have to do the work. You have to get to the point where surrender, where you're like, sure, I'll do it. Yeah. yeah. It's so beautiful, though, when you get there. It's so beautiful because that's where the freedom begins. Yeah. The fight for freedom, right? It's not mm-hmm. like, oh, all of a sudden it's done. It, we're never done, but it is a different journey of you can breathe again. Yeah. 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 I mean, it had to get really bad, but it's... Like, just in 10 months, like, I I met you mm-hmm. in teacher training, so um, it has been almost a year of sobriety now, and wow. I've become a certified yoga instructor. Yes. You know, that was one of the big things on my You're list. teaching paddleboard yoga at the bay. Yeah. <laughs> just got a job. Yeah. I just taught my first big class this morning, so yeah, I'm teaching paddleboard yoga on the bay. Um, we're volunteering together, Greece yes. and I, to teach yoga in the prisons and jails. Um, so Prison learning yoga project, yeah. Yeah, and I started running again, mm-hmm. which has always been something that I've enjoyed. You ran a marathon. I ran a marathon. Yep. So your body's healing. My body's healing. Yeah. I, I am so grateful for the forgiveness of my body. Yeah. Like it's, I've watched my numbers go up. I. I spent the first three months of my recovery at a doctor's office every day, yeah. getting tests done, getting numbers done, getting lectures, getting supplements, figuring out going to this specialist, going to that specialist, and it's mellowed out a lot. Um, you know, I'm I'm 33, and that's still relatively young. Mentally, I feel very old right now, <laughs> but the doctors are telling me my body is still young. <laughs> And it, it's bouncing back, um, but I've also been, I've, I've forced my body to live in such a nutritional deficit for so long that I, it's been really important to me in my recovery to focus on giving my body all of the nutrients right. that it needs and it wants. And yeah. so if I feel hungry, like I feel like I'm appalled, I'm like, I'm to my body, I'm like, I'm so sorry that I just made you hungry, like Aww, let me eat yeah. something for you, you know, and I've really tried to I've had to separate yeah like this is my body this is me I am taking care of my body as if it is my best friend right now you know self-care yeah so good but but it's so weird I really do have to think of my body as a different person you know because if I I still if I think of it Mm -hmm. as me like I need to do this for me I Mm -hmm. still don't think I fully deserve it so but for now it's fine. That's, I think, just part of the process of you learn and you grow into mm-hmm. the self-love integration. Whatever it takes for for now to just do it, whether yeah. you have to speak to your body separately or not, you're doing it. And then in time, you know, it took so... I always, I always tell, like I always think about how it takes so many years for us to get sick. 
right? Yeah. And, to, and you're learning for so many years these dysfunctional patterns of coping with the pain. Because mm-hmm. that's what it is, you know. The reason for these stories is to note that this is an escape of pain. Mm-hmm. Right? This isn't just a um, party. Yeah. It's so deep. Yeah. And the recovery also takes, you know, it takes time to integrate that. But even just the fact that you're aware of it, awareness, the mindfulness, I mean. Oh, yeah. It's just. So many people are out there struggling and they either can't get help or they never will. You know, like the small percentage of people who get to go to a program or get to find recovery, like it's, it's. It makes I'm so grateful. Yeah. I'm so grateful yeah. to be here. Yeah. I'm yeah. starting grad school in August. Oh wow. Yeah. Um, here in San Diego? Uh yeah, it's online. So yeah. good, good. don't leave me. No, I'm not gonna <laughs> leave you, I'm not gonna leave you. Yeah. So that, what are you gonna study? Um, so I'm in the first cohort of do you know the National Outdoor Leadership School? Mm-hmm. Most people call it Knowles. Okay. Um, so they're like the leader in teaching people how to lead in the wilderness. Oh, wow. And they just started a master's program. So I'm going to be in their first class. Fine. So for um, well, wilderness retreats. You know, yeah, yeah, I know. I was thinking about it. Like I just, yeah, we were meant to be in yeah, each other's lives. See, this ordained, like yeah. this spirit guide is just so phenomenal. Yeah. I decided that I mm-hmm. want to do the work to become a wilderness therapist so um this is just this is the first of two master's programs that I want to complete so this one's 12 months so I'll get a master's in wilderness leadership and I'll be spending 90 days in the next year in the backcountry with my group and oh how amazing yeah and like that would that would not be possible to do if I was drinking. Yeah. Like, that would, would just be impossible. Yeah. And then um, I I want to become a licensed counselor yeah. and be able to pass on just the, on the, the gifts. Yeah. And I think that's really the coolest part, the very coolest part of recovery is not the personal growth and achievement that you you get but the fact that once you get those things that means that you've unlocked the box to the tools to pass to other people right and yeah like that's 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 where the i mean that's how you continue in recovery that's why i think i mean that's where the magic grows mm-hmm. it's already there already grows you can't keep what you got if you're not giving it away yeah 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 and yeah. then it's just like love breeds love and positivity yes. breeds positivity um i still live at coast recovery the sober living community that i moved into mm-hmm. um and for the past two months and I, I have been managing it mm-hmm. so i got um I got that position, and so I came in this like wide-eyed resident who needed to be told when to go to bed and you know how to live my life. Mm-hmm. And it's been a really quick growth spurt of me just like taking ownership over those things. Mm-hmm. And now, like 
you know, we, we have curfew, curfews at midnight, you have to be home at midnight every night. And I remember thinking that's so weird, you know, I was used to just like roaming the streets until the early morning. Um, but now if I'm out somewhere, I'm like, I want to get home by midnight. Like mm. I, I want to get home by 9 PM, yeah. you know, like, I be in bed yeah, <laughs> cause I've got to be wet rested and mm. I have to wake up early in the morning to seize the next day, mm. you know, like, and that I never thought that mm. I would be that kind of a person. I always thought that that kind of a lifestyle was for other people, for mm. normal people, but it's just for people who are trying to do good things with their life. Yeah. So it's now to take care of your body and to, yeah, and we need sleep. We need good nutrition. Mm-hmm. We need structure. Yeah. 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 That's so cool. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. So helping the four. There's 14 women at Coast, and they're all, you know, they're coming straight out of um, a rehab or a drug recovery program, and so now I I get to help them walk through this this moment in their life that I just walked through, and it's such an incredible experience mm-hmm. like I think I told you I got um I got a job in Thailand this summer right and I had said yes to it and I was looking for plane tickets and then out of nowhere coast asked me if I would take this position and my gut just said like this is where you're supposed to yeah. be like Thailand will always be there like mm-hmm. you're supposed to be here of service to these women mm-hmm. that's where you're at right now and it's it's so cool to be able to follow my gut now, you know? Right. And like, to know that, mm-hmm. that's, that that's the right thing. You're growing your roots. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much for sharing the hope. I feel like it's always part of the recovery of anything is telling and telling your story. Yeah. To create just like a greater perspective and awareness of well, how this is. It was all meant to be, and this is good stuff. Yeah. Thank you so much for sharing. Thank you. I love you, Grace. Thank you for all the good things that you do. Well, we're sharing. We're keeping it real here. Keeping it real. (laughs) It's hard, but if you do the work and you ask for help, and stay teachable. Something (laughs) helping you, and stay teachable, yeah. Yeah. Stay teachable, folks. It's so cool because it's like so many people that are not even addiction, but I still see. There's same medication, mm-hmm. different different degrees, obviously, but if you're willing to pay attention and do the work, even if you're not an alcoholic, yeah, stay off the phone all day, stay, stop complaining, stop blaming, mm-hmm. you know, stop eating McDonald's all day. I mean, there's so many things that you can look forward to when you just take the path of awareness. Yeah, and it all comes back to gratitude. Like, yeah. don't eat fast food. Be grateful for your body. Yes. You know? Like, it's all... It's, yeah. yeah. Notice you're mm-hmm. eating crap. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's a whole other podcast yeah. right there. I'll be back for yeah. that. <laughs> thank you, Lisa, for coming. And thank, thank you, you guys so for listening to Tales of Recovery. We'll see you guys next time. Yeah. Hang in there.